Coming up. And he said, this work of being a good person is hard. And that just blew me away that this man has shown more courage in his life than I feel entire cities will show. He's not done learning. He's not done growing. He's still actively trying to be a goodish person, trying to own and learn and do better. And I felt like when he said that, I said to myself, if he's not done, then I'm not done. Today on In Session, Leading the Judiciary, we discuss how striving for good keeps leaders and organizations from being better. Dr. Dolly Chug, author of The Person You Mean to Be, How Good People Fight By Us, says being good suggests an obtained goal, while striving to be goodish allows room for continuous learning and improvement. Nurturing a growth mindset to be goodish helps us avoid the self-threat often felt when our good identity is challenged and ensures organizations become what we want them to be. Dolly, a social psychologist and professor at the New York University Stern School of Business, teaches MBA courses in leadership and management and studies bounded ethicality, or what she calls the psychology of good people. Her work has appeared in top publications to include the Harvard Business Review, Psychological Science, and the Journal of Applied Psychology. This is part one of our discussion with Dolly. Look for part two of the discussion coming December 7th, 2022. Our host is Lori Murphy, Assistant Division Director for Executive Education at the FJC. Lori, take it away. Well, welcome, Dolly. We're so delighted to have you. Lori, thank you. I'm really excited to be here. You say that instead of looking at ourselves as good, we should try to be good-ish. So can you tell us what good-ish means to you? What I mean by good-ish is this idea that we're, we're in a state of improvement constantly. We're always getting better. No matter what we know today, we're going to know more tomorrow about how our actions affect others, how the world is changing around us, how certain beliefs we grew up with may not be useful or maybe never were. And this idea of taking accountability for our own learning, taking accountability for our own mistakes is what I call being goodish. And it's a higher standard than being a good person. It was something that sometimes I, I haven't explained as clearly as I'd like. So I'll, I'll take a chance to get it precise now that I mean goodish to be a higher standard than good. When you're in a good person mentality, there's really nothing else to do, right? You're just fixed mindset. It is what it is. Either you are that or you're not. It's brittle. When you're in a goodish mindset or a growth mindset, you're always actively trying to get better. No matter how good you are, how bad you are, you're always in this state of flux. And so I consider it a higher standard, more active standard, and something that we're used to doing in a lot of other parts of our lives. You know, we're a lot of us in our jobs are better at our jobs now than we were last year. Or as parents, we're trying to be better than we were before. Or when we're managing someone new, we're sort of, we know a little bit more about what motivates them now than we did, you know, when they first started. And that growth mindset is something we know how to activate. When it comes to the good person identity, the data says on a one to seven scale, most of us are at least a four in, in sort of how much we care about being seen as and and looking, um, being seen as by others and feeling internally like 
a good person, even though, by the way, we all define a good person totally differently, but however we define it. And, and yeah, that self-threat comes when I feel that that image I have of myself as a good person is being threatened. You know, my daughter is a big Mets fan. When people say, oh, you're from New York, you must be a Yankees fan. That's an identity. She's like, what? No, I'm a Mets fan. Why would they think I'm a Yankees fan? Like, we project whatever. No offense to any Yankees fans out there. That's just, that's her identity. And and so we defend identities. We care about what I'm, I'm very invested in thinking about. How do we work through that self-threat? How do you know that you're in that state of self-threat? How do you know that for yourself? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the easiest way to know is to assume you are (laughs) because most (laughs) of the time, I mean, I don't think it's just me. Most of the time we're in what Carol Dweck, psychologist at Stanford, would describe as a fixed mindset, not in our whole lives, but on these good person type of issues. We're often in this, either I am a good person or I'm not. That's what I mean by this brittle fixed mindset. And when we're in a fixed mindset, what Carol Dweck says is that, you know, it could be about anything. It could be about math, let's say. When you're in a fixed mindset about math and you either think, I'm really good at math or I'm terrible at math, wherever you think your math abilities are, you don't view them as something you're going to improve at. It is what it is. We should just assume that's where we are most of the time, unless we're intentionally, very actively pushing ourselves into what Carol Dweck would call a growth mindset what I would call being goodish. It requires a level of intentionality is what I'm hearing from you. That's a great word for it. It's a level of intentionality. It's a level of liberation because that good person mindset is one in which it's very threatening. Like, I mean, I somehow need to know how everything affects everybody in the whole world and get it right every single time versus... I'm going to try to get it right, but when I don't get it right, I'm going to figure out what I can do to get it right the next time and do better, which means taking a little bit of a, like, maybe a little hit on, I have to say, I'm sorry, I have to look at the harm I've done. So that kind of stings, but then I get it right the next time, and that's liberating. And this goes along with uh, a dichotomy you talk about in the book, shame versus guilt. And so can you talk about that a little bit and how that intersects with what you're discussing Yeah, absolutely. People who study emotions like shame and guilt are more specific than we are in our everyday language about what those words mean. So I, I, we might just use words like I felt so guilty or I was so ashamed, like interchangeably. Whereas a shame and guilt researcher would say guilt is about the specific action, whereas shame is about the person as a whole. So if I feel guilty, that I, you know, I neglected to thank somebody. I'm feeling guilty about that action, but I'm not feeling that I am as a human being somehow a bad human being. If I feel ashamed that I did not thank that person, then I'm sort of feeling my whole being is, you know, that I've done something as a human being that I'm, I'm flawed in some way. What, what the research shows is that we, when we feel shame, we actually withdraw our action, like that intentionality that you talked about, like we do less. When we feel guilty, we actually go into action mode and we try to repair the thing. Like, oh, I didn't thank that person. I should have. Let me go repair it. And so guilt motivates action. Shame sometimes doesn't. And so guilt is actually more useful. We can focus again on not I globally as a human being 
am completely, you know, a mess as, as opposed to, I didn't know that thing. I messed up that thing. I'm going to go fix that thing. I'm a professor, right? So I, I care a lot about building a classroom where my students are motivated to learn or contributing or working hard or, you know, when I ask a question, I'd like to see some hands go up, that kind of thing. One day, my teaching assistant, I asked her to do some tracking for me and, and let me know what I'm missing. And she came back and said, you're calling on men disproportionately more than you're calling on women when they have their hands up. And I was like, what? No, 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 no. I strongly believe in like, you know, the agency of women. And how can this be? So how did you get to a place of a growth mindset away from shame towards a little, maybe a little bit more guilt or how did you make a behavior shift as a result of that? Well, I mean, I, I practice this a lot and I will say it, it, it sounds so trite, but it really does get so much easier with practice because, you know, I, what I think I have learned is that the world keeps spinning and therefore I keep getting opportunities to do better next time by the people I might have unintentionally harmed in the past. And so I, th- I hope that's that's getting at the question you were asking about, like, how do you shift into that? It, it is it, there is a little bit of a virtuous cycle that kind of starts once you start, like, just start. Mm-hmm. And maybe a little muscle memory that kicks in. Yes. With the practice. Yes. There's also a great rule. It's called the weight rule. W-A-I-T. Why am I talking rule? Mm. This was something I try to use as a little tip for myself in the heat of the moment. It's like somebody says something to me, which I'm like, what? No, what, what, what? And I immediately, of course, want to explain myself and defend myself and very much want to explain myself again in case you didn't get it the first time and that kind of thing. I try to just have like a little neon light in my head go, wait, rule, wait, rule, wait, rule. And so why am I talking rule? And allowing them to tell you what they've experienced, seen, observed, noticed, is not the same as saying you agree with it. It's just accepting the gift that someone had the courage to tell you something you didn't want to hear. I mean, who wants to tell people things they don't want to hear? That, that is not a fun thing to do. Right. Another word for that is feedback, right? Which, which can be a four-letter word in some, in some places. But it is, without feedback, we have no possibility to know that we've done something that has caused harm. Exactly, exactly. Jack Welch used to be CEO of General Electric, and he talked about like the more senior you get or the more power you have or, you know, just the more distant you are from the, the, the person who's offering you the feedback. It's like wearing lots of sweaters where you almost don't even know what the temperature of the room is that you're in. In, in other words, you're just disconnected. And, and so you need someone to calibrate you. And again, I, I'm not saying this is easy. But I am saying it might not be as hard as we think it's going to be. A couple of terms that we haven't yet talked about that you mentioned in your book, and I think helped me conceptualize your work, were believer and builder. And we can we can be a believer and and believe certain things and yet not be builder. So can you help us understand what you meant by those two terms? And then what kind of gets us tripped up in terms of moving from believer to builder? Absolutely. When I was writing the book, the first questions your editor asks you is, who's your audience? Like, let's write for your audience. And we kind of brainstormed a bit. And in the end, I said, you know, my audience, I'm not trying to convince people that bias doesn't exist in the world. 
if you're absolutely convinced that bias is not a thing, or if you're absolutely convinced that white people are the targets of more racial bias than black people, I did not write a book that's going to convince you otherwise. There are there's voluminous data in science, but but my book is not going to be the one that will, will will bring that home. I am writing a book for believers who believe the science, who believe the data, who believe in values like diversity, inclusion, equality. You know, if if you're deeply invested that in white nationalism, and you know, I'm not going to convince you otherwise, right? So that's what I mean by believer. But what I wanted to offer the reader was just because you're in my believer audience doesn't mean that you or I, any of us have the skills and tools we need to take what we believe and actually build teams and organizations and systems and laws and cultures and courage and feedback loops to actually build those things. That takes skills and tools. That takes practice. That takes a growth mindset. That takes being goodish. And so believing in and of itself is not enough. What I'm hoping this book does is give us a path towards being a builder. And I got some wonderful feedback after the book came out that I made it sound like either you are a believer or you're a builder. It's like one or the other, multiple choice, pick one, which I think I did write it that way, but where way I should have written it is it really is a continuum that we're sort of moving from believer to builder. And on some, I'll use myself as an example, I think on issues of racism, I'm further along in being a builder. I think on issues of ableism, I'm I'm more in the believer camp and working my way towards builder still. So, you know, in different, different areas of knowledge, we're in different places. I love that. I almost have an image of, of dials that on all of these different issues, we're somewhere between believer and builder, and maybe we we move one direction and we go back. And the goal is to keep moving toward builder. It sounds like totally, exactly, and 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 goodness knows the world keeps changing around us as well, or more new perspectives are made visible in the world that we weren't aware of in the past. And so, you know, just when you think you have nailed it, like so many things in life. What would you recommend for us to get some wider perspectives, just to, again, broaden our scope and to, to see what we what we haven't seen? This is going to sound like the most eavesdroppy thing, but I think social media is the ultimate coffee shop to eavesdrop on people and hear conversations you wouldn't normally be part of. And so the way I do this is with hashtags. Like my own ableism is something I've been trying to learn more about. So if I Google something like hashtags, disabilities, you'll get some options and then you can search for those. And then what you suddenly are able to, you know, eavesdrop on is conversations between people who know more than me or having experiences different than mine, who may be speaking very candidly on the internet with, with other people or arguing on the internet and you learn a ton in a very efficient amount of time. Now, to be clear, just like if you're in the coffee shop, nine times out of 10, hopefully we don't like barge over to that person's conversation and be like, let me insert my lived experience into your lived experience. I mean, you just sit back and pretend you're reading your book. Why are you shopping? And the same thing is true on social media. The idea here is not, 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 not to to insert ourselves at all, especially when you feel you need to. That's when you need weight. That's when you need the weight rule. Why am I talking? Why am I typing? But I found social media to be amazingly powerful and efficient. 
a way that doesn't put the burden on other people to educate me. I'm not saying we shouldn't talk to other people. I'm just saying like something happens at work. You know, you can tell you get a little nonverbal, like negative body language over something like, I have no idea why me saying that was wrong. You can go look it up and then you will no doubt find an entire conversation somewhere on social media that will explain it. And so it's it's been incredibly powerful. And I, I think if people, of course, there's a million things to, to really despise about social media, but if we can curate it as a form of intentional, curious eavesdropping, I think it's really powerful. And then we can take what we learn and start to notice more and move forward from there. Absolutely. Sticking with ableism, at first I was like, I can't believe there's a whole hashtag about this. Um, and then I start reading these experiences people have had, and I'm absolutely mortified as somebody who's worked in higher ed, you know, for almost 20 years. And then I see example after example of things that I'm guilty of with my own students and teaching. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I mean, talk about being a believer, not a builder. I mean, I never would have thought I was running a classroom that wasn't accessible, but I may sometimes be doing exactly that without realizing it. And so, you know, I'm following the law. This is not that, but I'm not necessarily being accessible. And as inclusive as you want to be, which is going back to the basic premise of what we've been talking about. So now I notice those things, some of those things. I also now ask questions that I wasn't asking before of my students, giving them the opportunity to tell me what I can do better. Mm -hmm. So Dolly, you've been immersed in this research, in this work, and you've admitted that you don't have it all figured out. So I'm curious, what are you still, as you put it in the book, stumbling upward about? Because one of the things that I was struck by in your book is that there's some research that when we acknowledge our own imperfections, our own um, foibles, our own attempts at growth, that it really allows others to, to do the same. Yeah, 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 that's right. In fact, there's work um, by Amy Edmondson, a professor at Harvard, about psychological safety, where it's when you're in a psychologically safe team or organization, for example, you have a shared belief that you can admit a mistake, you can ask a question, you can take a risk, you can propose a quote unquote silly idea. And so one of the best ways to raise the psychological safety of a team is for the most powerful person on the team to model doing those things, you know, admitting the mistake or saying something they're working on. So that's very consistent with what you just said. For me personally, in addition, uh, you know, but there's a lot I'm working on, but I would say the thing that's actually most top of mind right now is it came out of in writing the person you mean to be, there's a chapter where I talk about the GI bill in the United States after world war II which, you know, I learned about, I think any anyone who took an American history class probably learned about the GI Bill and, you know, opportunity to buy a home with a very low cost or no cost mortgage, opportunity to go to college essentially for free uh, for veterans of World War II to thank them for their service and give them an opportunity to kind of jumpstart their lives back in the States. And I had understood that led to the rise of the suburbs, the rise of the American middle class. It was this incredible thing. And it was only when I was writing this book that I learned that it essentially applied only to white veterans, not black veterans, through this sort of labyrinth of you know state and federal laws. And it basically worked out that it was the GI Bill was predominantly for white veterans. 
it was actually the rise of the white middle class and the rise of the white suburbs, which when you hear that, you're like, oh my gosh, that explains a lot of what we see in the world today. Disparities in generational wealth, in home ownership, in college attendance. It doesn't explain everything, but boy, it sure explains some things. Sure. And the fact that I didn't know about that. Now, I've since given many talks, and I, I, I sort of play this out in the book of this GI Bill uh, learning, but but then when I've given talks about the book over the last few years, I've often asked rooms full of people how many of them, by show of hands, knew that about the GI Bill, and most people don't, including, and I say this with so much respect for educators, many educators don't. Well, I'll admit, Dolly, that I, when I read that part of your book, I thought, well, of course, and oh my goodness, why did I not connect those dots? Thank you, Lori. And I'll be quite honest, when I read it, when I read about the GI Bill, I was, first, it was just like, that's just not true. I need, I need to find a more legitimate source. And then I kept looking and it, it's totally legit. But then secondly, I was angry and I was ashamed. How can I claim to be, you know, whatever I am and not know this basic thing? And so that led to what I'm thinking about a lot now, what I've, I've, I've just written another book about now, which is how do we navigate those feelings? Okay, so I need to now like understand what really happened with the GI Bill. But honest, in that moment, I didn't want to because I was just so ashamed. Remember, shame makes me act less. I just wanted to retreat and pretend I had never stumbled upon that. And I think that's making it hard. A lot of people never heard of Juneteenth and then suddenly heard about Juneteenth. And then, wait, how did I not know about Juneteenth? How did I not know about the Tulsa massacre? There's a lot of things we didn't know. And there's some unpacking to do of the emotions that come with that. So getting the knowledge and the history is pretty easy. We live in the age of the internet. Like it's not hard to get good, credible knowledge, but navigating the emotional part of doing that, I think is hard. And for me, it's hard. And a lot of people have told me it's hard for them as well. So that's what I'm thinking a lot about right now is, is sort of the emotional work of reckoning with history. We don't necessarily makes our heart hurt, honestly. Mm -hmm. So thank you for that. What else would you like to share with us today, Dolly? Well, maybe I'll just end with a a short little story that is is one that I return to time and time again. You know, you ask, how do you kind of get out of that self-threat? How do you go into the goodish mindset? I mean, this, this is a, this is a touchstone for me. Many of us know about the Greensboro Four or the Woolworths lunch counter sit-ins. In 1960, Jim Crow laws prohibiting African-Americans from, let's say, ordering a hamburger at this lunch counter and in many public spaces. And um, four college freshmen who would uh, eventually call themselves the Greensboro Four decided they were going to sit down for as, as Black uh, men and refused to get up unless they were served or unless they were arrested or unless they were dragged out or unless the store closed. And they pledged to be nonviolent in doing it. This was February 1st, 1960. Joe McNeil was one of the leaders of this this group. And they, live cigarette butts were pushed on them. Hot coffee was poured on them. Police were called. And they came back day after day after day bringing more and more friends with them, word spreading across the United States, starting other sit-ins in other spaces, especially in uh, World Wars being a national chain. 
And this would lead to eventually, by the end of the year, Woolworths would desegregate all of their lunch counters nationwide. And, and it was part of, you know, before and after this, other sit-ins that were part of the civil rights movement. And today, Joe McNeil and the Greensboro Four are many heroes of people who took tremendous risks. So I tell this story because I've been fortunate enough as a professor to have Major General Joe McNeil come speak to my students as a guest speaker several times. And uh, the first time he came, I cold called him. I didn't know him. I didn't have a relationship with him. I was so nervous. I was like, I hope my students, my 21st century students appreciate what an amazing opportunity this is and what an uh, iconic um, figure they're meeting. Uh, but they totally did. And he was amazing. I don't know what I was expecting. Some sort of like larger than life firebrand, you know, activist or something from the movies. But he's this incredibly humble, soft-spoken funny, dad joke kind of funny guy, you know, just very sweet. And he gave beautiful, inspiring remarks. And then we went to Q&A. Then a student got up and said, sir, thank you for your service. Thank you for your courage. Sir, what are your views on gay rights? And um, you know what? Joe fumbled in that moment. And it was public and it was, it was not good. I don't even remember specifically what he said, but I remember being like, okay, I, I'm so sorry. I think we're out of time. And I cut it off. And I wish I could say that I chatted with him about it afterwards, but I didn't. Um, it didn't in that moment find the courage and, or the words. And I invited him to come back the next year. Um, and to my amazement, the next year when he came back, you know, he gave his inspiring remarks. He told us awesome dad jokes. But then before we went to Q&A, he said, just a moment. Please, please ask me the questions on your mind. Because since I was here last year, I have learned a lot. I have been watching the news differently, tuning into stories I used to skip. I've been asking my grandchildren to explain things to me. I've really been thinking about how I was raised and grew up. And I was so taken by this that eventually when I came to write my book, I interviewed him and asked him what happened between year one and year two of that guest speaking. And he said, this work of being a good person is hard. And that just blew me away that this man who's shown more courage in his life than I feel entire cities will show he's not done learning. He's not done growing. He's still actively trying to be a goodish person, trying to own and learn and do better. And I felt like when he said that, I said to myself, if he's not done, then I'm not done. And so I just offer your listeners perhaps that little touchstone as well. I love it. The ultimate in growth mindset. Yes, yes. And I think there are many things that make him a great man, but perhaps the greatest and less spoken about is his growth mindset. Dolly, where can we learn more about you and your work? Oh, thank you so much. Well, I have a website, Dolly Chug, that's uh, D-O-L-L-Y-C-H-U-G-H.com. And there um, I have a free newsletter, which uh, comes out once a month and is, um, people seem to like it. It's kind of bite-sized and zeitgeisty tips on how to be more inclusive. All the back issues are on my website. And I have a new book coming out uh, October 18th 
called A More Just Future that was inspired by my experience with the GI Bill, where I really wanted to think about the past and the emotional work of doing that. So that that book will be uh, in store soon. Well, Dolly, I could talk to you all day. I'm so grateful to you, Lori, and to all your listeners. And I'm sure we don't show the gratitude we should. So thank you. Thanks, Lori. And thanks to our listeners. Look for the second part of our discussion with Dolly in the next episode of In Session, Leading the Judiciary, releasing December 7th. To hear more episodes of this podcast, visit the Executive Education page on fjc.dcn and click or tap podcast. You can also search for and subscribe to this podcast on your mobile device. In Session, Leading the Judiciary is produced by Shelley Easter. Our program is supported by Angela Long, Anna Glashkova, and the entire studio and live production team. Thanks for listening. Until next time. This podcast was produced at U.S. taxpayer expense.